Welcome to another episode of NeuroPodCases, a clinical neuroscience podcast. I'm joined today by Dr. Matt James, who is a consultant neurologist at Salford Royal Hospital and an honorary lecturer at the University of Manchester. Dr. James specialises in cognitive neurology and works in the cerebral function unit, Salford Royal. He has extensive clinical and research experience in the progressive aphasias. In this episode, we are going to focus on the progressive aphasias, their causes and how to differentiate them. To start with, would you mind giving us an overview on what the term primary progressive aphasia means to you and what are the main syndromes that are covered by this term? Okay, so I think um, so. primary progressive aphasia is quite a broad term despite its precise sounding nature. Um, and, and it really has been with us in this current form for about 10 years. So that's the first thing. So, so what we currently refer to as PPA, primary progressive aphasia, and the subtypes have actually only been with us in this form for 10 years. Um, so, so it's currently split into three syndromes. And within these primary progressive aphasia syndromes, you've got semantic variant progressive aphasia, non-fluent variant progressive aphasia, and logopenic variant progressive aphasia and um, progressive aphasia simply means you know a progressive difficulty with language um, by definition it has to be the main problem it has to be the problem causing disability um, and uh, it sort of has to be assumed neurodegenerative so no other disease process could plausibly cause this so you know you can't have a stroke giving you aphasia and then another stroke giving you worse aphasia. So, so that's not primary progressive aphasia. It has to be a sort of progressive, gradual condition in the same way that, you know, all these neurodegenerative diseases have to be progressive and insidious in onset. So, so th- that, that, this sort of tripartite system has been with us essentially for 10 years and everyone's kind of got used to it. It's not perfect. And, and we know that there are patients who have progressive aphasia who don't fall into one of these three categories. And we also know that it's possible for patients, at least at presentation, to, to actually fulfill two of the categories simultaneously. Um, and it's also pac- possible for patients to progress and start off in one category, but then develop new features and end up in another category. So I think what I'm sort of saying in a not very roundabout way is it's an imperfect system, mm-hmm. but it is the current system. If you go back historically, um, the notion of progressive language disorders is not new. And, and like a lot of neurodegenerative diseases, that we're all now pretty familiar with. Uh, progressive aphasia was described, you know, at the end of the 19th century. There are really good descriptions of patients with progressive aphasia from like Arnold Pick. And like a lot of these degenerative diseases that were well described in the late 19th century, they sort of got forgotten about in the 20th century until sort of late 70s, early 80s. And then interest in them was revived. Um, and, and with progressive aphasia, it's sort of early 80s, Marcel Mesulam sort of started working on them and simultaneously or around that time you had sort of Elizabeth Warrington and Judy Snowden describing sort of semantic patients um, and, and over that period of time they became strongly associated with frontotemporal dementia and for a period they were inextricably linked so the criteria for FTD described FTD as one of the syndromes semantic as one of the syndromes and non-fluent as, as the third syndrome so, so they sort of shifted over time really from a very rare thing described in the distant past to something that was probably something to do with FTD and now it's sort of on its own as, 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 as PPA and, 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 and yeah I imagine it will change again because that's the nature of, 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 of these syndromes. I think it's an important um, point though is so, so PPA and how it's described it is actually fundamentally different or conceptually different to the way we describe or, or, or diagnose other similar conditions. So, so these three syndromes in PPA, it's a classification system. So that is essentially a box for putting patients into if their symptoms fit. And the PPA classification system is disease agnostic. And when I say that, I mean the diagnosis of a PPA syndrome doesn't presuppose any specific pathology other than a degenerative pathology. And that's quite different to diagnosing Alzheimer's disease. If you diagnose Alzheimer's disease clinically, the person meets the clinical criteria, the idea is that they will have Alzheimer's disease in their brain. 
So that, that brings, brings us on. on nicely, really, to what diseases cause these syndromes. I imagine this is particularly important for research purposes and for potential treatment options in the future. Yeah, I, th I think so. so. So the current classification system could be, if you're being uh, um, uncharitable, you could say, well, it's, it's just, you know, arbitrary, arbitrary labels that we've given <clears throat> that patients more or less fit into, only just more than less, as it turns out. Um, but what these patients actually have are degenerative proteinopathies. So these diseases are all characterised by the aggregation of misfolded proteins. Um, and, 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 and we know that patients with PPA can have a number of different pathologies in their brain. Um, broadly speaking, this splits into the frontotemporal lobar degenerations and Alzheimer's disease. Um, so frontotemporal lobar degeneration itself could then be split further into primary tauopathies and TDP43 proteinopathies. And you can split that even further. So the tauopathies can be split into PIC type, corticobasal degeneration and PSP. And the TDP43 proteinopathies just get letters, so ABC. Um, and we see most of these diseases causing various forms of PPA. Um, but there are some broad rules. So generally speaking, <clears throat> Patients with semantic variant PPA have a frontotemporal lobar degeneration characterized by the buildup of TDP43 patency. But some patients with semantic variant PPA turn out to have Alzheimer's. So it's not perfect. Um, patients with non-fluent variant PPA, generally speaking, have an FTLD pathology. And, you know, it's quite often a tauopathy in actual fact. But by the same token, some patients fulfilling the criteria for non-fluent progressive aphasia will have a TDP43 disease, or some will even have an Alzheimer's disease. Um, the logopenic variant of progressive aphasia is most closely associated with underlying Alzheimer's pathology, but it's not perfect. So patients who seem to have a logopenic pattern to their speech will sometimes end up having frontotemporal lobar degeneration, normally a TDP43 proteinopathy. And they could even have a genetic form of FTD with a granulin mutation. So there are lots of different underlying diseases. And, and the reason why this is important is almost philosophical, really. So, so when you see a patient in your clinic, the question is, do you want to sort of put them into um, a box or give them a label to which their symptoms superficially fit? Or do you want to understand what's happening in their brain? And do you want to diagnose them with the disease? And, and there's, you, what you want to do might depend on your goal, really. So, so if you were doing you know, research into the phenomenology of speech patterns in progressive diseases, you might want to use a classification system and just lump patients together depending on what their speech sounds like to you. But I suppose if you were ultimately invested in discovering treatments, it's likely to be more beneficial to define them by their protein because I think most people expect proper disease modifying treatments for neurodegeneration will have to target protein aggregation or protein spread um, and therefore understanding the actual disease in a given patient is likely to be where, 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 where the money's at. And that's what we've seen happen with other degenerative diseases. So compare and contrast the PPA classification system, which is entirely disease agnostic, the sort of recently proposed criteria for Alzheimer's disease, which conversely is entirely symptom agnostic. So a recently proposed, admittedly research proposed system for classifying Alzheimer's disease is the so-called ATN system, where you define someone by their um, amyloid, their tau, or their neurodegeneration biomarker pattern. And then the final thing is the S, which is symptoms. <laughs> so that's gone the other way. And obviously, we're a little bit further down the line in finding and testing treatments for Alzheimer's disease than we are for the PPA. So I guess the next step in the research advancement in this field could be in the discovery of markers, perhaps biomarkers or even clinical features that would reliably help us to, uh, to identify these syndromes based on their underlying diseases. But at the moment, how do we distinguish these syndromes based on the language deficits that they're presented with? 
so the whole classification system is based on what the speech sounds like essentially um so somebody with non-fluent progressive aphasia um when they come into your clinic room it'll be obvious they've got a problem with speech production so they'll be struggling to get their words out it will sound effortful you know these patients are often sort of banging their head with their hand trying to get their words out it's so frustrating for them and when you listen to their speech carefully you can often detect a problem with their grammatical output so that their speech is agrammatic and, and that might mean that they've got the wrong tenses to the verbs they're using it might mean <clears throat> that the verbs and the nouns disagree with each other it might mean that they've pluralized things that shouldn't be pluralized it could be syntactical errors with words in the wrong order in a sentence or it could be that their speech has become very telegrammatic so it's just massively simplified so all the all the little sort of connecting words of the sentence have disappeared and you've just got the main characters there subject uh, you know um verb object um in, in in different orders you may from listening to their speech notice that whilst very effortful and, and difficult it's also distorted um so that the the noises that they're making aren't even speech sounds so they're making non-speech sounds and, and and these patients have got something called apraxia of speech and they've got an inability to access the motor programs that you rely on for normal speech articulation and as a result the speech is horrible sounding um, it doesn't really sound like speech anymore um, and, and patients with non-fluent variant progressive phase by definition have a grammatism and or a fracture of speech those are broadly speaking the two abnormalities um, logopenic patients we take them next they also when they come into your clinic room have obviously got a problem with their speech um, but it's slightly different although it can be hard superficially you know initially just to pick up the difference so they are partially non-fluent so if you took the whole consultation you'd have to say well the whole thing wasn't very fluent but actually if you pass up the speech what you find is that they have fluent bursts of speech and then a pause because they can't find a word so they've got a word retrieval deficit in their spontaneous speech and then they sort of um and they uh you can almost see that it's on the tip of their tongue and they'll sometimes try to circumlocute but this has produced a pause if you like in their speech it's not truly non-fluent speech because other bursts of speech are by definition fluent um and 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 these patients are the logopenic patients so that is what logopenia is it means word finding difficulties in, in, in spontaneous speech the semantic variants are probably left to the end really because they're the ones who might come into your clinic room and you might not know that they've got a speech problem and they might not complain of a speech problem because these patients are fluent completely fluent so they produce exactly the right number of words per minute in fact often too many and they can sound garrulous they can sound as if they're talking over you they don't always respect the normal conversational rules um, and, and they just go and go really but when you listen to the content of their speech it's oddly empty in terms of nominal terms so you'll find that they're not using the correct noun for everything in their sentence and they'll use fillers like thingamabob or what's going call it or they'll use overly inclusive terms like animal to mean anything with four legs or dog to mean anything with four legs um and, and these patients have got semantic disorder and, and they may not actually present you with a speech problem they may not be referred by the other doctor saying please see this patient they've got a speech problem it may be couched differently and in particular it may well be couched in terms of memory so they it may say that they seem to be they're forgetful and what they mean is they've forgotten the meaning of words uh, these patients will also um strikingly sometimes not understand the words that you're using particularly if you unwisely or wisely use low frequency words and this is something that sometimes they're other half or, or, or their significant other will mention you know you'll ask them do they ever you know not understand what you're saying and they'll be like oh yeah they did yeah, yeah. so, so they, you know they might have gone to a, a baptism or a christening or something like that and they're in the church and their other half said to them you know look at the vicar up there in the pulpit and the patient will just suddenly say pulpit what's pulpit and that word would have disappeared from their knowledge so they've lost the knowledge of what pulpit is because it's not a word they're familiar with they don't use it very often and then and, and that patient has semantic variants and and so 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 those three broad categories of speech are, are, are how we define these primary progressive aphasias 
the, the problem being that you have patients who don't fall into one of these categories very neatly. They have another hard to define problem with speech, or they have a bit of a both, they have a mixture. And sometimes we refer to these as just PPA, sort of not otherwise specified, or mixed PPA. Or, or sometimes the easiest thing is to just call it PPA and not to worry too much about the subdivision, particularly if they're at an early stage. Undeniably, I think some of these patients are just simply at an early stage, so, so they might only have you know, a mild anomia, difficulty naming things, but they haven't developed much else at this point. And maybe you'll have to see them again to find out exactly what way their language is going. So although these are principally recognised as pure language disorders, we do know that other cognitive domains can be affected, particularly as disease progresses. So what non-language features might you expect to see in the PPA syndromes? And can these be useful in helping to differentiate between them and even at distinguishing the underlying disease mechanism? So, so I think this is where it's actually really interesting and, and often more useful. So if we want to define PPA using the PPA classification, we're forced to only use language. And the positive features of a PPA diagnosis rest on the presence or absence of language features. There is a little bit in the background of the PPA criteria saying you're not meant to have a bad episodic memory problem or bad visuospatial problems, you're not meant to have a bad sort of frontal behavioral disorder. And you can see why they've done that to, 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 to exclude obvious FTD and obvious Alzheimer patients who often have a bit of a language disorder. And so that's fair enough. But you can see lots of patients whose problem is obviously language that is why they're disabled that is why they've come to see you but they have other issues as well and these other issues are what makes it more interesting because then using these other features you can start to have a better guess at what their actual disease is and you can move away from that ppa classification and move towards diagnosing their brain disease which i would suggest is what a neurologist should be doing so if we think about the semantics first, so you've got a patient whose problem is that they've forgotten the meaning of words, so they can't name things accurately, um, and they don't recognise words for what they are. So, so these patients will often have other features. So, so one is that they'll often not just fail to recognise words, but they'll fail to recognise objects. So it's not just the name of something they don't know, but they may also fail to recognise something from its visual representation. They may fail to recognise something from its sound or get sounds mixed up between things. They might even fail to recognise something from the smell or its taste. Um, so this is a degradation of semantic knowledge. And that's really what lies at the heart of this disorder. It's not really a semantic aphasia. It's a loss of semantic knowledge which is a more broad thing than just language i i, I think um, and, and this can be striking so some patients in fact it's predominantly a problem with visual recognition and that's simply because their disorder started in their right temporal lobe as opposed to their left temporal lobe um, they'll, they'll have the naming problem as well because all these patients are to a certain extent bilateral it's just where the balance lies right more than left or left more than right um, so, so when you see that they've got a sort of you know, like multimodal semantic deficit, that, that, then, then you know that you're dealing with one of these frontotemporal lobar degenerations. It's a TDP 43, probably type C. You know, that's the level of specificity that we're getting down to with these sorts of patients. Um, if you go further outside the realms of language and cognition and stray into the world of behaviour, you'll, you'll find that most of these patients have got some behavioural change, even if it isn't causing disability. So most of these patients will start to become more routine bound. They'll start to clock watch. Um, their dietary preferences will change, not in the same way as FTD. So FTD, you see lots of overeating and chocolate and stuffing and things like that. So these patients develop an ever narrower repertoire of what they want to eat. So they just want to eat the same thing on a Tuesday, every Tuesday, and eventually it's the same thing every day. They'll often develop uh, a slightly odd tendency, but very striking, um, to puzzling. So they'll be doing Sudoku puzzles or word searches. And I'd strongly advise you leave some of these books out in the waiting room and see who picks them up because they'll be the semantic patients. Um, so, so yeah, so there's quite a big sort of syndrome around this semantic variant. So the semantic variant bit 
of the aphasia is the is the umbra, but all the interesting behaviour and other features of the penumbra. And, and detecting all of that makes you much more confident that you know what you're dealing with. Um, if you've got someone who's who's non-fluent, then I'd be looking for associated um, frontal executive features um, in the history. So maybe they become a little bit more rigid in their behaviour, a little bit more routine bound, a little bit intransigent, maybe just a little bit less caring. But these won't be striking, these won't be severe and they won't be the main problem. They won't be what's caused them to come to the doctor, which is what you see with frontotemporal dementia, where that's the main problem. Um, the patients will um, sometimes, um, and why that's useful is because those patients are going to have an FTLD pathology that's underlying their, their, their non-fluent um, uh, aphasia. Um, what, what, what's really interesting is some of the physical signs you see, even early, these patients so some of the patients have got subtle parkinsonism um, normally just you know rigidity or bradykinesia um, some of them have got apraxia um, and when those signs are strikingly asymmetric you know asymmetric parkinsonism and, and, and apraxia then you know it's, it's very likely that this is a corticobasal degeneration pathology presenting with progressive aphasia which is, which is well known to occur some of these patients who come into the clinic and they've got obviously effortful speech, it's quite um, distorted, it's, you know, it's, it's, they're, 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 they're making errors in, 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 you know, in sort of articulatory sort of processes. Um, when you examine them, they've actually got what is the beginning of a vertical supranuclear gaze palsy. So they've got slow and hypometric saccades. That's because another one of the pathologies that underlies some of these patients is PSP. Um, and, and you can identify these patients pretty early, actually, because they come with speech and they've just got subtle vertical supranuclear gaze palsy. You do the old pull test on the shoulders when they're standing and they just take a few too many steps back. Um, and in fact, you know, that's telling you something important. It's telling you that, yes, they've presented with progressive aphasia, but that's just a label. What they've got is PSP. And with updates to how we define PSP, we can, you know, diagnose these patients without a full house of classical PSP features as, you know, so-called PSP speech language onset. We see a lot of that in our clinic. Um, it's one of the common reasons for um, uh, sort of common underlying diagnoses of progressive aphasia patients, actually. Um, and the important thing about these patients is, I mean, as you know, PSP patients are old. It's a disorder of older people. And there is still a bit of a lingering sort of institutional memory that, oh, progressive aphasia, that's something that young people get. What well, can be people in their 50s and 60s, but actually, you know, patients in their 80s present with progressive aphasia because of PSP. Or another tauopathy. Um, obviously, a good neurological examination is always helpful, and just occasionally you, you'll find something else like sort of subtle wasting in vesiculations, and, and, and very occasionally patients with motor neuron disease caused by TDP43 um, will present with progressive aphasia. It's, it's not common, but when you find those signs, then you know I think it is important to diagnose MND presenting with speech problems rather than calling it progressive aphasia and ignoring them as they get gradually weaker and hyperventilatory. So then logopenic patients are the last ones, the hesitant patients with word retrieval difficulties. So what we're looking for in, in them really is, do they have evidence of Alzheimer's disease? So we're looking for associated Alzheimer's disease um, symptoms and signs. So if we're saying Alzheimer's disease has caused their progressive aphasia by causing logopenia, it's going to be left lateralized Alzheimer's disease, probably sort of temporoparietal. So we should be looking for problems with calculation. We should be looking for problems with the spatial elements of praxis, perhaps subtle visuospatial problems, perhaps not perceptual problems with, um, with, with vision, but perhaps difficulties with visual construction. Um, and, and once again, neurology examination could be unrewarding in a lot of patients, but in some patients, you know, you'll see subtle sort of myoclonus or stimulus-sensitive myoclonus, which is a, often a clue that the underlying neuropathology is, is, is Alzheimer's. So there are lots of these extra clues outside language. And the reason why they're so important is they're often clues to the pathology. They don't help you with the syndrome. The syndrome is based only on the speech. But the underlying pathology can be um, got at from these surrounding features. And I think that's why it's so interesting to, to look at these patients, you know, in the round. And when we see that these syndromes can extend so much beyond a pure language disorder, particularly with a more global loss of concept and behaviour changes that occur in patients with semantic variant PPA, I wanted to ask what your views are on the use of the term semantic variant PPA versus the term semantic dementia. What terminology should we be using for these patients? 
So, so I think it, it might depend a little bit on the patient in front of you. I think if, if you've got a patient at a very early stage and, and all they have is, you know, anomia with an apparent semantic basis, then perhaps for that patient at that moment in time, the best diagnosis is semantic variant PPA because that is what they, what they have. And there is a bit of uncertainty in a patient at a very early stage as to whether they will develop lots of classical semantic um, knowledge problems and behaviours because of TDP43. Or, or, or will they go in a more Alzheimer's direction? And, and you see these patients at a very early stage sometimes. Um, and, and, and for those patients at a very early stage, you know, it might be the right, it might be the right label. But if you've identified that they have problems with object recognition, that they can't tell people from their faces accurately, that they can't identify objects, or they misidentify objects, or just generalize when they see things, um, then it's gone beyond language. Um, so it's by definition, as far as I'm concerned, not an aphasia. It's a progressive disorder affecting multiple cognitive domains. It's presumably causing them problems, otherwise it wouldn't come to the clinic. But de that, that's defined as dementia. Um, so unless you've got a personal problem with the word dementia, which I appreciate some people think is stigmatizing, um, then, then I can't think of a good reason not to call this semantic dementia, because that's what it is. And as the disease progresses and you see the behaviors just wreaking havoc in the family, in the household, um, it's clear that calling it an aphasia doesn't seem right because actually what's causing the problem is dementia. I guess with a lot of these as well, it's about keeping an open mind and as, as the patient progresses, our definitions can, can change and evolve with them, I guess. I think you've got to be flexible about that. I think you've got to be, accept that you know, we don't have very good diagnostic tests for these conditions by and large. So actually keeping an open mind making the best diagnosis you can and following them up it is a good thing. And certainly if I'm not very clear what I think is going on, then I would generally just arrange to see the patient after an interval, having given them a sort of interim diagnosis and I'm comfortable with that. You know, we don't have better tests sometimes than the passage of time. So I imagine that the majority of our listeners will have been faced with a patient in a busy general neurology clinic at some point who is presenting with a progressive language problem. It can be difficult in this setting to tease out the true language deficits. Do you have any top tips for neurologists seeing these patients in a clinic on what initial screening tests might be useful? I mean, I think these aren't great patients for busy clinics. There's, there's no doubt about that um, because the person's got a communication difficulty. It's going to take longer. Um, the person's got a cognitive impairment, which means by definition, you should be speaking to an informant as well to get a fully rounded picture of the patient. And this all takes longer than a patient coming in with throbbing headaches, nausea and vomiting who's got migraines. So, so they are going to take a bit longer. So, so, so that's the bad thing about it. You know, it is, it is unfortunately just going to be tougher. Um, I do think that there's sometimes a tendency to rapidly identify a patient as having a cognitive disorder in your clinic and too rapidly move to applying tests cognitive tests because you think god i've only got half an hour 40 minutes whatever it is i've got to fit in the mmse or the mocker in the ace i'll have to curtail my history to fit in the mmse or the mocker and, and that's the mistake that people make because you can diagnose these patients on the history you don't need any extra tests you'll know what they've got from the history you'll refine the diagnosis and you will increase your level of certainty with extra testing as we do with everything in neurology but the diagnosis will come from the history and exam. So I would, in many ways, say don't worry about cognitive testing at the first, that first clinic opportunity. Make sure you get the history you need, which means getting the informant as well as the patient's point of view. Because if you think of all the things we've talked about, about those extra behaviours that might be there, you're going to need to speak to someone who knows them to have noticed that change. And the patient may not be aware of all those changes. In fact, they normally aren't, to be honest with you. Semantic patients are often very acutely aware of a problem remembering words. That's what they'll tell you again and again and again about fluently. But they won't be aware that they've, you know, that, that, that they'll only eat sausage sandwiches for lunch every day. They won't be insightful into that. So, so time spent getting the history is absolutely time uh, most valuably spent. And then doing a proper neuro exam, not skipping the neuro exam, thinking, well, this patient's got a cognitive problem. They don't need a neuro exam, they need a mocker. No, they need a neuro exam first. Because actually, what if they're pool test positive and they've got a vertical supranuclear gaze palsy? Actually, it doesn't matter what's on their mocker, they've got PSP. 
So that's the most important thing. Just do the basics. If you've still got time after that, then what I'd say is the most useful thing to do is get a recording of their speech. Um, and, and a good way to do that is to get them to describe a picture. So a lot of people use like the cookie theft picture. Um, or people use sort of, um, well, there's various different lines, they're mostly line drawings. There's, there's a, a boy on a beach scene um, that people use. There's a simple sort of picture book telling a linear story like a fairy tale, but anything really like that will do. I tend to use the cookie theft picture myself, so I've got a version of it on my phone so I can just show people. Um, and, and get them to describe what they see in the picture. And don't prompt them and don't let their other half prompt them either. Um, and, and, and that gives you the opportunity to do two things. You can listen back to it, and it's hard to pick up speech abnormalities in real time because it's difficult anyway, and everything's more difficult in real time. And so you can listen to it again. Um, and the second thing is you might then get to play it to somebody who does listen to a lot of speech disorders and will give you an opinion. And that's not so dissimilar to what we sometimes do with movement disorders, isn't it? Someone's got a funny movement disorder. Most people will try and get permission for a video to be made and then show it to a movement disorder specialist. So the same thing I think applies at speech. And when you listen to someone's speech, and they're doing the cookie theft or whatever it is, you know, you might be able to detect those distortions, those articulatory planning problems that define apraxia of speech. You might pick up a grammatic element to their speech that you didn't hear on first pass because you're looking for them. You have a checklist when you listen to the recording. You might notice that, the, that what you thought was non-fluency is pauses due to word retrieval issues. Um, we might be able to notice that whilst they're speaking pretty fluently, they actually haven't used any proper nouns for anything in that picture, and everything's just the thingy. The boy, the girl, the thingy. Um, so, so that's, I think, maybe the single most useful, um, given the fact that so many of these disorders have other cognitive elements, there is nothing wrong with doing a mocker or an MMSE or an ACE. They are basic, pretty robust tests. Um, but I think detailed language testing in the general neurology clinic is doomed to failure, if I'm being completely honest with you. And keep it simple. Um, so once you've done your initial assessment, you've got a, a kind of a vague idea of what might be going on, what category they fall into. Um, what kind of initial tests or diagnostic approach do you usually take for these patients? So, I mean, so again, it, 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 I mean, it differs probably what sort of clinic you're seeing them in. So if you're seeing them in a, in, a, in a cognitive clinic and they've been referred by somebody because of cognitive problems, you know, they're probably going to have neuropsychology after you've done your assessment. That's probably the next thing that's going to happen. But that probably isn't realistic in a general clinic. Um, and it isn't always realistic in a cognitive clinic, to be honest with you. Um, so the single most useful test is an MRI scan of the brain. So these patients have got degenerative disorders of the brain, by and large. Um, and that often shows up on MRI. Um, so we're looking for atrophy because atrophy provides us with a biomarker of neurodegeneration, which is helpful. We know they've got a degenerative disease. Then we need to look at the pattern of that atrophy because the spatial pattern of the atrophy might help us be more specific about what type of neurodegenerative disease it is. And broadly speaking, these three syndromes have patterns of atrophy um, that tell us something about their underlying disease. So patients with semantic problems have, and specifically, you know, the disease characterized by TDP43, known as semantic dementia or semantic variant PPA, have striking and severe atrophy of the anterior and inferior temporal lobes. I mean, it's striking and it's always there at presentation. So you can't really have semantic dementia have a normal scan, as far as I'm concerned. The atrophy is always there. So it's an incredibly useful test. Um, they go a bit careful um, to look at the scan yourself because general radiology reporting will often just call this temporal lobe atrophy is this Alzheimer's. That's the sort of comment you might expect. But when you look at the path of the atrophy, it's the pole of the temporal lobe that's been decimated. The inferior temporal gyri have completely shriveled away. And yes, there's lots of ex vacuo dilatation of the temporal um, horns, but it's because of the other volume loss. Um, so it's not really an Alzheimer pattern. It's usually bilateral, almost always asymmetric. In fact, I would say always asymmetric for, for semantic um, dementia. The logopenic patients, um, we're going to expect them to have, you know, temporoparietal disease. That, that, that's, not, that's what we're expecting. And, you know, left side of temporoparietal atrophy is, is what you'd normally see. 
that is not a terribly specific pattern, but it's associated more with Alzheimer's than any other degenerative disease. So I guess that's helpful. Um, I think the most tricky ones are the non-fluents, because often their initial MRI scan looks pretty normal to the naked eye, and the atrophy can be surprisingly subtle. I mean, some of them do have obvious left frontal atrophy, but, but often they don't. And it's just a bit of perisylvian atrophy, which is subtle widening on the, of the um, uh, solstice on, on, on the MRI scan. It's, it can be difficult to detect, to be honest with you. So, so those, those are the ones where the MRI scan can, can be a bit disappointing sometimes. That's okay. If you've got a progressive history and the MRI scan hasn't given you a clear pattern, then you, know, you could do functional imaging with SPECT or PET, FTG PET, depending on what's available locally. And that might give you a very broad, you know, pattern of hypometabolism or hypoperfusion. It's going to be left lateralized because it's a language disorder, but a more frontal pattern of hypoperfusion or metabolism is generally a good sign of an FTLD pathology. And a more posterior pattern is generally a good sign of, of an Alzheimer pathology. In our experience, um, that generally holds true. So the patients you think have got a frontal disorder have frontal changes on their scans. The problems, of course, lie in those patients who don't fit into one of the nice categories. They've got progressive aphasia, but they're a bit of a mixed bag. And you do the imaging and it's just left-sided atrophy. It's not very posterior, it's not very anterior, it's not strikingly anterior temporal. You've just got a bland, non-specific scan and an unhelpful syndrome. And in these patients, if you want to push it, you can push it. And, and potentially you can look for biomarkers of Alzheimer's disease. So in these patients, selected patients, I guess, you could proceed to either amyloid PET or, or perhaps more helpfully CSF um, to, to, to look for a sort of pattern consistent with Alzheimer's. So, so the patients whose disease is caused by Alzheimer's in the CSF, they should have um, low amyloid and they should have raised phosphotau. And, and, and with that pattern, you could probably say, well, this patient's disease is, is caused by Alzheimer's, not by definition, therefore, an FTLD. If the Alzheimer's biomarkers are negative, then you can probably by inference say, well, it must be an FTLD, but you won't get any further than that. We don't have good biomarkers at this time for the TDP43 proteinopathies or, or most of the tauopathies, to be honest with you. So that's about as far as you can probably take it outside of research, I'd say. Um, and I guess once you, you've got those results, you're bringing the patient back to clinic and, and speaking with them and their families. What do you usually tell these patients um, about what to expect in the coming years? Particularly, are there any useful support networks that you might sign patients and their families to? So I think this is the point at which it becomes helpful to have spent extra time trying to work out what the disease is rather than just what the syndrome is. Um, the reason for that is if you've got somebody who's presented with a logopenic pattern of speech, but they've got other features consistent with Alzheimer's and imaging or biomarkers consistent with Alzheimer's, you can be more accurate in your prognosis. You can tell patients that their disease is going to progress, but it's probably going to progress to involve these other cognitive domains. This is something that they may wish to plan for. Um, you can offer them symptomatic treatment for Alzheimer's disease. Lots of these patients do have a working memory deficit, and it's not unreasonable to give them a cholinesterase inhibitor. Not everyone feels better on it, but certainly it's not an unreasonable thing um, to do. Um, so, so I think that's useful and I think it, it allows more accurate prognosis. It may allow them access to interesting research studies for newly developed drugs for Alzheimer's. So, so there's lots of reasons to try and make an accurate diagnosis in Alzheimer's, I think, particularly at the moment. In semantic variant cases, I guess, you know, once again, prognostication if you're confident this is in fact you know semantic dementia then the patient's behaviors that are currently subtle are going to get worse that's something that people can use and 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 help to plan for the future um semantic dementia is an interesting form of ftld because we know that ftld is you know quite often genetic and inherited you know 30 percent 20 percent 30 percent cases um Interestingly, not semantic dementia. It's basically not inherited. There is no gene that we know of that causes semantic dementia. So knowing that is useful. Patients can be worried about that. Um, so you can put people's mind at rest just with that piece of information. For the non-fluent patients, it's often about thinking about you know, emerging motor phenotypes, about gait instability, Parkinsonism. Um, with apraxia of speech, it, 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 it can herald you know, other problems like swallowing problems um, and, and getting speech and language therapy involved, particularly for those where you're worried about 
swallowing problems in the near future can be helpful, but actually any of these patients with progressive aphasia could benefit from a, a suitably trained and adequately interested speech therapist. Um, because whilst you can't massively correct the deficits with speech therapy, you can work on alternative communication methods, which will help the patient feel less frustrated and help the family understand what's going on um, when the patient's unable to get their point across verbally. So there is, you know, stuff to be done. Um, you need ideally knowledge of what local support groups are available and not every region has a aphasia, progressive aphasia support group, that, 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 that's the case, but some do. Or some will have a support group for patients with an early onset or atypical dementia. Um, or failing that, there is a national support group. Um, so the Rare Dementias UK um, organisation uh, run a PPA branch and, and it's a really good organisation um, uh, with contacts for patients and their families, lots of information, events which are currently obviously virtual, not live. Um, uh, and, and obviously, you know, signposting them to the usual resources like Alzheimer Research UK and the Alzheimer Society, because those broad charities, that, that, that they cover all of these diseases. Um, and, and if the patient's suitably interested, then highlighting things like um, joint dementia research um, to get involved in, 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 in sort of research studies and things like that. So lots potentially to talk about. So in our clinic, we do a separate you know, appointment just to discuss results and go through prognosis and talk about support and things like that. And you know, there's a whole practical side of this, you know, thinking about getting lasting power of attorney sorted out, inform the DBLA, um, have you made a will? Um, so there's a lot to talk about um, and, and it usually merits a separate appointment and isn't generally you know, a case of writing back a letter saying your MRI scan shows atrophy, you've probably got dementia. Thank you for that. Um, I thought it might just be helpful um, if we just finished on a case. So I'll just read out um, a very brief scenario. Um, talking through your initial impressions and how you might approach this particular patient. Um, so this is a 63-year-old right-handed male. Um, he's a retired English teacher. So he's presenting to clinic with a progressive uh, difficulty with his speech that has evolved over the last four years. He first noticed some difficulties when he was at work. He was teaching in the classroom and he would frequently mispronounce words and he felt he was stumbling over sentences. He eventually took early retirement because of these difficulties. His problems persisted and he now finds that he avoids conversations in general. His wife, who accompanied him to clinic, also commented that he frequently made mistakes when texting her. And you see an example on her phone where he's written, love, um, sorry, you I love, rather than I love you. His medical history is otherwise unremarkable. He's a uh, keen golfer, which he plays without any difficulty. There are no concerns about his memory. And when you do a brief examination in clinic, he's orientated. Um, he's able to perform well on tasks of attention and he's able to register and recall items after delay. Testing of visuospatial skills is unimpaired and his comprehension appears intact. His verbal fluency is reduced and he can only name four items with beginning with the letter P in one minute and six animals. He's correctly able to name all uh, items shown on the Addenbrooks. But he struggles to repeat back the words hippopotamus, eccentricity and unintelligible. He also struggles with sentence repetition. He's unable to pronounce a regular word such as so, pint and dough. This is a few sort of things about this chap. So, I mean, so he's got a progressive disorder of speech production. So you can definitely, you know, put him in that progressive aphasia category, I think. And it's quite a long history, four years, um, which isn't in and of itself that unusual in, in progressive aphasia because people can become aware of speech problems at a very early stage. It's noticeable, particularly if you're in a job where you use your voice a lot, like he's a teacher. So I guess he'd potentially notice this really quickly. Um, and actually that, presentation tells us some useful things. So he's mispronouncing words and stumbling over his sentences. Um, so, so, so straight away, you know, this isn't semantic variant PPA. Um, so we can pretty much take that out of the equation straight away. And, and he's obviously acutely aware of it and he's embarrassed by it. Once again, it's not something that patients with semantic problems tend to describe. Um, so, we don't have that much of a description of his spontaneous speech. Um, we know that his texting is affected. So he's tried a very simple sentence there and he's made a syntactical error. 
Um, but you know, we can't probably put too much weight on that. It's a fairly, it's a fairly simple, um, common error. Um, and he's obviously pretty well in himself. I mean, being a keen golfer, it's not necessarily pathological, of course. Um, but the fact that he's playing without difficulty, I guess, suggests he probably doesn't have a significant motor phenotype. He's probably not got, you know, severe limopraxia. Um, he's probably not very Parkinsonian. And he probably hasn't got lots of postural reflexes, I guess. You would, might, might reasonably assume that. Um, and, you know, he's, he's orientated and so forth, and he's registering and recalling. Um, so he's not, he, he's not amnesic. Um, and, and it's good to know, but it, it probably doesn't help that much. Um, people conflate amnesia and Alzheimer's disease. And of course, it's true to say that most old people with Alzheimer's present with amnesia. It's also equally true to say young people with early onset Alzheimer's often aren't amnesic. Um, so they might have working memory problems and other temporal, parietal, neocortical deficits, but they're often not amnesic. So, so, so retention of that sort of learning curve, I guess, doesn't help in PPA that much. Um, the uh, visuospatial skills being unimpaired, that's helpful, isn't it? Because I guess it points a little bit away from a widespread Alzheimer type pathology. Um, he can understand things, that's really good as well. It means it's not semantic dementia, but I guess we already knew that from, from his presenting complaint. Similar with verbal fluency, so semantic patients might not have a reduced verbal fluency, could actually be okay, um, but they might be errorful. Uh, so, uh, you know, having a reduced verbal fluency per se doesn't help define which sort of progressive aphasia you've got. A logopenic patient could easily be um, reduced in fluency, as, as will a non-fluent patient by, by, by definition, really. Um, it's quite interesting, he names all those items in the Addenbrooks. There's obviously not that many pictures in the Addenbrooks, but some of them are quite hard. Um, and, and the fact that, you know, his, his verbal fluency is pretty bad, and the fact that he, even a few years ago, was stumbling over his words when he was speaking in class, but can name all these pictures is quite striking. I guess, you know, it, it's probably fair to say that logopenic patients often have a mismatch between their spontaneous speech being pretty bad and sort of constrained confrontation, I mean, being a bit better. It might be useful to know how he performed qualitatively because somebody can get all those words, sorry, all those names of the, of the, of the pictures, but it can have been a bit of a sort of labour of love. You know, they were sort of umming and erring, it was on the tip of their tongue, they described it, and then they got it. So you could maybe infer a little bit more about whether it was word retrieval that he was able to overcome. Um, and then you've got this repetition issue. So he's struggling with long words and he's struggling with sentence repetition. And those are definite features of logopenia, of course. Um, but if you've got another speech disorder um, of a non-fluent variety, you could also struggle. Um, what you see with logopenia is, is a mismatch between simple words being okay. They repeat them. And as the words get longer and more complicated, they're more likely to make an error, particularly phonological error. Um, and the same with sentences, they can repeat a short sentence, and as the sentences get longer, they make errors, they lose track. Um, and then at the end, we've got this problem with pronouncing irregular words like so and pint and do. Um, so, so this could be, you know, um, surface dyslexia. So he's, he's reading irregular words as, as sort of phonetically, um, which is, you know, a feature that you see in semantic variant, but we know this patient doesn't have semantic variant. PPA, so this is just a problem with reading, I would suggest. It's probably not as specific as, as, as a surface dyslexia. Um, so, so overall, he's got a few features um, to suggest logopenia. He's got a few features that maybe hint at some, some tactical, maybe or maybe not, grammatical problems which put him in the non-fluent. So he might, he might be one of these characters that's sitting between two, sitting between two classifications. Things you could do to take it further forward. Obviously, I guess looking at error types in, the, in, in, in what he has done is, is one thing. I mean, obviously, formal neuro exam, as described earlier, we've got you know, the history that a neuro exam could yet reveal some interesting clues for him. Um, and returning to the history, you know, full behavioral history, you know, sounds of his insights good for sure. Um, but from his, you know, other half's point of view, 
What about apathy? What about empathy? What about sympathy? What about rigidity and routine bound behaviors? What about disinhibition? Doesn't sound like it, but a lot of things are forgiven at golf clubs. What about his diet? So, so those things would all need sort of careful examination. Um, and then, you know, you could still be left with somebody who's got a PPA not otherwise specified. He might, he might not fall into a classification system, but he must have a neurodegenerative disease given this history, in which case we're then looking at an MRI scan. Does it give us a pattern that's suggestive of one or another functional imaging or given the fact that it's probably, you know, logopenia and the commonest disease that causes this is Alzheimer's, I guess you could check his biomarkers if you were so inclined and he was so inclined. But that's the sort of way he's going. It's a very typical case. These, these, this is how it comes. It comes in messy. Not quite fitting into those categories that they write about in the papers. Yeah. Thank you. Um, especially the take-in points for me from this have been um, to maybe take a, a step back on your, it can be quite easy to to focus and trying to pick out the particular language deficits when a patient's presenting with a primary language problem um, and, and be very hell-bent on trying to categorise them into, into the syndrome, but the more overall picture and, and focusing on the kind of the basics of the history and examination can perhaps provide more useful information than if you just hone down into language straight away. So that's a very good take-home point for me anyway. Um, is there anything else you wanted to to comment on before we finish up no i mean i think you know i, I but you're exactly right it's about history taking and 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 basic examination and then listening to as much speech as you can that that that, that, that that's where it comes from and you know at the end of the day how much do we need to worry about you know a classification system that's only 10 years old it'll probably change maybe not so much let's think about working out what the brain disease someone has is and actually that means we can not ignore language, we can set it to one side and think, well, we've got all this other rich information to help inform our decisions to what might be causing this person's brain disease. And I think then it becomes easier. There's no doubt that out of all the cognitive presentations, I know that progressive language disorders cause people the most grief, you know, compared to progressive disorders of memory or visuospatial function or behavior. These are the ones that people struggle with. As I say, I think it, it's been made to feel more complicated than it has to be. That's what I think. I would definitely agree with that. Thank you very much, Dr. James, for this youthful breakdown of the PPA syndromes and their underlying diseases. I certainly have found this very helpful and I, for one, will feel a lot more confident in my approach to the next patient I see presenting with a progressive language problem. I've no doubt that our listeners will too. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. For more information about this episode, please visit our website at neuropodcases.co.uk.